The reading from God's Word this morning will be from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And here we find the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as recorded for us. Beginning there in verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, in you, and that is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And those you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God has chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. Of this, this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Well, good morning to everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles with me this time to 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to start out with a few verses there uh, in just a few minutes. 1 Kings chapter 12. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about godly authority in the home. Last week we looked at godly authority, the nature of it, it, it kind of stepping back from a broader perspective. Now we're going to zero in on authority in the home and talk about that. If you think back to the Old Testament and during the time, you know, when Samuel was born and, and he grew up there in the temple and the high priest Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were wicked men. They were behaving immorally. They were violating the laws about the sacrifices to suit their own appetites. And sadly, Eli neglected his parental authority. He did not rebuke them for their wickedness. So God 
told Eli that he would judge Eli's house because of, quote, the iniquity which he knew, Eli, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. His sons rebelled and he did nothing. On the flip side, years later, Solomon had a son named Rehoboam who became king after Solomon. And when he became king, the people presented their grievances to them of of many of the hardships that they had under Solomon. So he first consulted his father's wise men. So look with me here in 1 Kings 12, verse 7. This is what the wise men said to him. Then they spoke to him, Rehoboam, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today... Will serve them, grant them their petition, and speak good words to them. Then they will be your servants forever. And as we look at the Bible, we can evaluate what they said as wisdom, godly wisdom. This is what he should have done. But he didn't like what he heard. And he rejected their counsel, and he turned to his young friends, young fools. And they advised him to say this to the people. Look at verse 11. Say this. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. As he abused his authority and his power, we find in history that the kingdom split. He lost ten tribes. He initially was king over all twelve. And because of his foolishness, because he rejected wisdom, because he decided that, you know, I have power. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And I'll just crank it up. And I'll show them. He showed them, didn't he? They showed him. And most of them left. You think about it, we don't know for sure, but the book of Proverbs was written by his father, Solomon. And to whom was it addressed, typically, throughout? My son. Rehoboam was his son. I'm guessing Rehoboam was in the inaugural class of Proverbs, right? The first one to receive this wonderful book that we so cherish. Over and over again, my son, my son, my son. And although Rehoboam was in the inaugural class of Proverbs, he flunked out. Now, everyone realizes that authority is often abused. And there are different ways that people respond to that. Some, like Rehoboam, they respond when somebody brings their grievances and they say, okay, you know, I've been under abuse of authority. And they say, well, we're just going to ramp it up and we're going to increase our, which we would call abuse of authority. Others react to bad authority by neglecting their own authority. And how often does this happen? We we grow up maybe under a um, an oppressive parent an abusive parent, someone that's very harsh. And then when it comes time for us to parent, we may respond 
by I'm never disciplining my child. I'm not ever going to tell him no. I'm going to let him do whatever, you know. That's how some people respond. They think that no authority is better than bad authority. But as we saw last week, John Lehman said, the solution to bad authority is not no authority, but what? Good authority. And that's what we were looking at last time. See, life just doesn't work without authority. It doesn't. Some of us were talking about that this morning. What happens if there is no authority? If we reject all authority, then we have anarchy. Then if somebody wants to kill you, they can. And nobody's going to do anything about it. You see, it's just ridiculous to think that we could ever live life with no authority. But, but it works badly. Life works badly under abusive authority. Authority is necessary in God's creation. And last week we defined authority this way. Authority is a stewardship for carrying out the assigned responsibilities of an office. Authority is a stewardship for carrying out the assigned responsibilities of an office. And let's let's examine this idea of authority more closely. And what I want to do is because the husband is, is the head of the wife, therefore he's the head of the home, I want to take what we've been talking about now for quite a few weeks this idea of male headship and the authority that goes with it and and break it down. So if we go to the next slide, you'll see there's three columns here. And let's talk about Christ-like male headship. And one of the reasons I want to do this is because that Christ-like male headship, what the husband does, it's supposed to set the pattern, establish a pattern for the wife and her authority, for in the two for the two of them as parents and their authority. So let's talk about what how this breaks down. What is the ground or the basis of authority, biblically speaking? And we're talking about primarily the husband here, okay? What is the ground or the basis? In other words, why do we do it? Why does a husband exercise authority when he does? It's because it's been given by God. The basis is God-given authority. You see, uh, a husband's authority is not intrinsic to him. In other words, he doesn't have authority because he's stronger or, as some people ludicrously say, is more intelligent or whatever. That's not why. You see, they get it backwards. A husband is stronger so that he can protect and provide and lead. You see, God decided the husband is going to have the authority and he's going to lead. He's going to be the head of the home. And in order to enable him to do that, he made him stronger. And he gave him other gifts so that he could do that well. And there's a lot of people out there today that they're getting all this backwards. They're saying, no, no, what we need to do is we need to develop this richer ontology and we need to look at the man's nature and we say, okay, the man is stronger and typically faster and so on. Therefore, because of that, he has authority. No, what you're doing there is you're taking natural revelation and you're putting it above special revelation. See, special revelation is what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that man, the, the husband, has authority. Okay? And so we need to get put natural revelation below special. Natural should never be above special revelation. But there's a, a lot of talk about that these days, and they get that wrong. The role, the middle column. What do we do? So a husband's authority, what does the husband do? Well, 
he loves, he leads, he serves, he cares for. And in the context of marriage, he cultivates oneness. That's what he does. That's his role. Okay. And then his character, the right-hand column, how we do it, how we husbands are to do this role. Servanthood. And we've seen that in Mark 10, right? Verses 42 through 45. So it's servanthood. And we're going to be talking about these things and this will all kind of tie in together as we move forward. So the takeaway today, main point I want us to grasp is this. Authority provides order in the home and God intends it for our good. Authority provides order in the home and God intends it for our good. Now, this may sound familiar because I just took what I said last time about authority in general and made it specific to the home. Now, we need to understand what is the what does authority look like in the home? We were talking about the husband, the wife, and the parents, those with authority. So what is that how what should that look like? First I want to talk about what is the what does the Bible say about authority? The Bible teaches that there is to be an authority structure in the home. There is to be an authority structure in the home. Let's talk first to the men. The Bible teaches that a husband has authority over his wife. In the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, and we can go ahead and go to the next slide real quick, and it's only going to be up there for a second. You remember, hopefully you remember this slide, okay? The eight evidences in Genesis 1 and 2 that show that the, the husband is to have authority in the home. Okay, I'm not going to read all those, and that's, it's on the slides. You all have it in your email, and so we can go now to the next slide. The New Testament builds on this foundation, okay? On the foundation of Genesis 1 and 2. You remember Paul quotes from Genesis 2, for example, and Jesus quoted from Genesis 1 and 2. So, uh, the New Testament is built on that foundation. Let me just give you some examples about the man's authority in the marriage. Uh, Paul says that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, 1 Corinthians 7. First uh, Corinthians 11, the man is the head of a woman. Um, the woman is to have a symbol of authority on her head, speaking about her husband's authority. And in First Timothy, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. <clears throat> and then one more thing about that. Um, husbands have authority uh, because Paul uses the word for rule there. It's the same word that he used for elders in the same book in First Timothy. He uses that word rule of both husbands and elders. And that helps us to understand both of those. You know, those are, they're not democracies. The husband rules, the elders rule. Okay, and again, same word. So, that's the men. But women also have authority in the home. Now here I'm thinking of the wives, the moms. And why do I say that? And, and not many people talk about that. Actually, I don't think I've heard anybody talk about this. So they, they talk about, the, you know, men having authority, you know, yeah, you know. And nobody says anything about women having authority in the home. But the Bible teaches that, okay? And I'm going to show you how. Both are given the dominion mandate, Genesis 1, and following. So it's man and woman together that have the dominion mandate. It's not the man who has the dominion mandate. It's both of them together, okay? 
So how does a woman have authority and dominion? She has authority over her husband, or children, sorry, over her household, over other women sometimes. In business ventures, we're going to see, for example, in Proverbs 31, that the excellent wife, somebody who is held up by Solomon or, or the writer there in, in chapter 31, in Scripture, with which the Holy Spirit had him write, showed that this woman had authority not only over her children, but over her servants. And apparently over those who were involved in her business ventures. These were things that she did. It wasn't her husband's business. It was in some way hers. Genesis 16, 9, we find that Sarah was over Hagar, her servant. We're going to see when we get into Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, when it talks about masters there, those are men and women, the husbands and the wives in the home. Okay, so the, the women did have authority over servants in the home. Women have authority over their husbands. Seeing heads pop up, people wake up. <laughs> Thought that would get you. Women have authority over their husbands. How do I mean? First Corinthians 7. Turn, turn there with me. First Corinthians 7. Some of you know where I'm going with this. First Corinthians 7, verses 4 and 5. Paul says there, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And here... And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what Paul does here is he gives a general principle. He says that the wife has authority over her husband's body. Okay, now, he does apply it specifically here in this situation because of the topic. It has, he applies it to their intimate relationship. And one of the things he points out there in verse 5 is that for them to briefly pause their intimacy, if you will, the only option he gives, the only alternative, or the only reason is for a time of prayer where they you know, feel like, you know, we need to have some time of dedicated, extended prayer here for for some reason. But she has an equal say in that. If the husband were to, to have some, and this likely would happen um, in the Corinthians, among the Corinthians, it, he has this mountaintop experience, and he's like, oh, it's just, you know, all oh, Jesus, you know, and and he's like, you know, I just want to devote myself to prayer. Sorry, wife, I don't have time for intimacy. So I'm just going to be devoting myself to prayer. She can say no. We can have, you know, a couple days. I'm just making up the number. You know. And he's like, ah, more than that. And okay, three days. Okay, and they agree. But she has an equal say. Equal say. Okay, do you get that? Now... He's, he's applying this general principle that she has authority over her husband's body to intimacy. And so that does mean that she has the authority to initiate intimacy with her husband. And uh, there's folks out there that it's kind of strange, I think, who say that, no, that's wrong for a woman. And it's like, that's Victorian. That's not biblical. It's not even the Puritans wouldn't even say that, you know. 
she has authority to initiate intimacy. But this is a general principle that he states. He doesn't say she has authority over his body for this only. She has authority over his body regarding the health and care of his body. So husband, when you're sick and your wife thinks you need to go to the doctor, you better obey. Otherwise, you're in sin. Now, hopefully Connie's not on. And <laughs> she's sick today, but... Your wife has authority. Um, she keeps me running and exercising, and it doesn't show, but, you know, it would be worse if I didn't. She has authority over her husband's body, okay? And husbands, we have to be careful by just you know, blowing her off saying no because we could be in sin. One more thing about women having authority. Women and men both will one day reign with Christ. And this isn't in the home per se, but I'm trying to show that, that women do have authority. So many folks, because they're, they're trying so hard to push hard against the, the feminists who are trying to say, yeah, there shouldn't be any authority. If there is any authority, it shouldn't be men and that sort of thing. And what they end up doing is they don't talk about women having authority, and they sometimes will even present it as if women never have any authority. And I've already shown you that that's not the case. And so I also want to show you that in the kingdom, however we understand that, pre-mill, amill, you know, whatever, that whether it's an earthly kingdom or we're talking about the eternal state, Jesus and the apostles teach that men and women, saints, will be reigning with Christ. And it specifically says, with authority over nations and angels. And so we need to think about this more, more robustly. What does the Bible teach? So that we don't have this idea that, okay, men are the only ones with authority, and, and you know, women, you know, they no authority. Let's not think that way. We need to think more robustly. Now, I'm going to get to uh, later on some of the errors, and, and we'll address those in a bit. So hang with me on that, but women do possess authority. Moms, wives do possess authority. Uh, And one more thing here, as we're talking about authority in the home, parents. So we talked about the men, talked about the women, and now parents. Parents have authority over their children. Um, Won't be too long, we'll get into Ephesians 6.1, which, you know, children, your favorite verse, right? Children, obey your parents, right? And I know it's your parents' favorite verse, but and we're not going to go into that because that's coming, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that. So, okay, but parents have authority over their children. Okay, that's authority in the home. Now let's talk about purposes of authority in the context of the home. Purposes of it. First, as we saw last time, it's for the benefit of those primarily who are under authority. It's for their benefit. That's not the way most people think about it. If they have authority, they think I have authority so that I get my way. And unfortunately, a lot of husbands think that way. They think, yeah, it's great to be the husband because I get home, I get in my recliner, put my feet up, get my paper and, you know, something to drink and, you know, I'm, you know, holler at my wife and she brings me another Coke and holler at my kids and they bring me my slippers and I, it's great, you know. It's all about me. And that is not at all the purpose of the authority that husbands are given. Husbands are not given authority to dominate their wife. 
He's not given authority in order to get his way. And I like to put it this way. The husband is given authority so that he can see that Jesus gets his way in the home. Do you get that? Husbands, that is why God gave you authority. That's why Jesus, who's the head of the church, has given you, husband, an author- given you authority so that you can see that Jesus gets his way in the home. It isn't about you getting your way, husband, dad. Your job is to see that Jesus gets his way. That means that you work to keep yourself following Jesus and obeying Jesus and your wife and your children. The husband is given authority so that he can lead his wife in cultivating love and oneness in his marriage. Parents are given authority so they can prepare their children to follow Jesus, hopefully, and also to prepare them to live well in this world. Those are two of the primary reasons why parents are given authority. It's not so that we get our way. It's like, oh, great, now we've got a house full of servants. No, it's not that. Now, yes, we're going to have them serve because they need to learn to serve just like we have to serve, right? And that's how you live life well. But more importantly, hopefully they will one day bow before the Lord and choose to follow Him as His servant. Another purpose we mentioned last time is for the benefit of those with authority in this way. It should be helping them learn how to be better at it. To grow in their skill set of being in authority, of leading, and all the things that go with leading. To grow in their character as those who've been given authority by God. You see, our character matters for every one of us, whether you're in authority or not. But if you're in authority, you're going to be held accountable for this. Your character better be developing to be Christ-like. And then a third reason that uh, John Lehman offers is uh, why do we have authority in the home? To teach what God is like. And he says, there's one last purpose for authority. Exercising authority teaches people what God is like. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage a lot of you are familiar with. Beautiful passage. Ties together our own personal discipleship and and relationship to God with that of discipling our children. So, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And notice that the the theology starts right up front. Okay, this is what you are to believe about God. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. There's only one God. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit. Sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, all the time. Parents, that's our job. It's a 24-7 job. Okay, Tucking them in at night, point them to the Lord. You're going for a walk, point them to the Lord. Getting them to help you do something, point them to the Lord. Doing school, point them to the Lord. Whatever it is, that's our job. We, we want... And, and, a, and a part of it is not just because... It's not just the 
um, formal academic aspect of teaching them. Because the way he expresses it there in verse 7 is like, parents, this should be a way of life for you. Your character ought to be oozing the character of God. So when your kids are walking beside you as you go for a walk, as you're you're working, you know, you know, dad takes his son out, okay, I'm gonna teach you how to mow and how to fix the lawnmower, and you're you're working on it and stuff like that, and you, you bust your knuckles. Okay, what comes out of your mouth? Okay? You need to be reflecting the Lord in that. And if something wrong comes out of your mouth, what do you do about it? Okay, the Christian responds saying, Okay, son, I just sinned there. I'm wrestling with my anger. And you and I, I hope that you know you'll forgive me. I've asked God to forgive me. That's what we do when we sin is we repent. We confess our sin. And you see, it's that, that godly character that they need to see in the everyday aspect of life, which comes out when we're living life. You see, when you have the classroom setting, it's easy. I mean, like even here. Okay, this is kind of a classroom setting in a sense, right? It's easy for all of us to be godly, right? And, and to behave ourselves, you know? What happens when we're at home? You know, we're working on the car and it just won't work. You know, or the, the washing machine goes crazy and eats up your clothes. And how do you respond? And, you know, that's when the character actually comes out. That's what Deuteronomy is talking about. We're to be teaching what God is like. You're teaching what God is like in the sense of when, when, you're, when it's bad character that comes out and you're not repenting of it. Sadly, you're, you're, you're basically blaspheming. You're, you're saying to your kids, that's what God's like. And He's not. They're learning something, you know, bad. And, and so we need to uh, be careful about what we are teaching our children. Also, one more thing on that. Godly husbanding, husbanding points to Christ and His church. So you think about it, there was that, that aspect of a husband, when he is doing what he's supposed to be doing and he is uh, loving his wife as Christ loved the church, what's happening is he's pointing his wife, his children, and the people around them to Christ. Say, Look at Christ. Because if you see any good in what I'm doing, the way I'm loving my wife, that's what Christ is like. And, and so, we're, we're to be teaching what God is like, what Christ is like, in our exercise of authority. Now, last time we opened up with talking about errors related to authority. Let's talk now about some errors related to authority in the home. First, the emphasis in Scripture is not on the husband's authority. One time I was talking about the role of men uh, men and women with someone, a man, and he, he remarked, well, you know, the emphasis when we talk about uh, male headship, the emphasis ought to be on the man's authority. I was like, no. First problem with that is that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus rebuked in Mark 10 verse 42, about that's the way pagans think about authority. Second, the Bible simply doesn't emphasize the man's authority. It doesn't. I mean, you won't find 
a verse in Scripture that says, the man has authority over his wife. The Bible doesn't emphasize it. Now, we've already established that the Bible teaches it. That's clear. We cannot deny that. And we have to hold tenaciously to that. That's not the emphasis of Scripture. When we think about headship and authority, particularly male headship and authority, <clears throat> the Bible lays that out. But remember that slide that we would, I just kind of let them flash on the screen there for a minute, the eight things we glean from Genesis 1 and 2 that show that the man is to be the head in the marriage? Nowhere in there does it say the man is the head in the marriage. But we found eight things that supported the fact that man is to be the head in the marriage. Right? But it was laid out kind of indirectly. And then it's just assumed. Like God already said it in Genesis 1 and 2, so from now on we're basically assuming it for the most part. And then there's a few places that I read earlier, like in 1 Corinthians, for example, where you know it's kind of referred to indirectly, um, that sort of thing. 1 Timothy saying the woman doesn't have authority and that sort of thing. But it's not the emphasis. Um, again, John Lehman said this, The inevitability of headship, I think, helps to explain why the New Testament doesn't tell a man to assert his authority. You won't find a passage that says, Rule her, or command your wife, or lead her with all authority, as it does say for church elders. The primary imperatives given to the husband are love, do not be harsh, live with her in an understanding way, show honor. That's where the emphasis is. Now, yes, there can be a place and a time for a husband to remind his wife of his authority. But that shouldn't be his mantra. That shouldn't be the emphasis. That shouldn't be the thing that he's crowing about all the time. In Genesis 2, the emphasis is on oneness. In Ephesians 5, the emphasis is on love. And under that falls tender care, nurturing, and guess what? Oneness. That's the emphasis. In this way, marriage is unique. It is not to be like other forms of authority. A husband's authority over his wife is not to be like the authority of the president or of a commanding officer or of a manager or of a parent or even an elder. That is not the pattern for the husband's authority. Now, there is some overlap. Yes, I get that. But the husband's authority over his wife is unique. It is different from all these other ones because of the aspect of oneness. And so, we need to keep that in mind. Regarding oneness, the foolish husband says, Honey, I've got this. If I need you, I'll ask for your help. The wise husband, concerned about growing oneness in his marriage, says, Let's do this together. I want to serve God together with you. And I think the Lord... Um, there were a lot of things we got wrong, but one of the things that the Lord taught Connie and me early on our, in our relationship as we were pursuing marriage, and it was kind of a, um, within Christian circles, you weren't say to say, well, we're getting married because we love each other, but you know, because what the world means by that. 
And so you had to think, okay, there needs to be some spiritual reason, you know. But that was kind of a good thing in a way because we thought, okay, why, why, from a spiritual perspective, why should we get married? And there were other reasons, but one of those was, and we both believed this, but I honestly felt that I would serve God better with her than without her. Now, I knew if God had decided that I would stay single, I could serve him in, in all the ways he wanted. But I knew that, I knew I didn't have the gift of singleness, so I know that wasn't going to be an option for me, so... God, I would serve God better with her by my side. And I have. And she's been, whatever good there is in my marriage, first goes to the Lord, second to her. You know, whatever good I've, I've done in ministry and all, it, you know, there's so many times when I'm so thankful of that. And that's how, there was a, a little bit of wisdom. I won't claim to have been a wise man back then, a wise man back then, but there was a little bit, so... Another error, error of being authoritarian. John Stott captured what the authoritarian husband is like. He said, he is a domineering figure who makes all the decisions himself, issues commands, and expects obedience, inhibits and suppresses his wife, and so prevents her from growing into a mature or fulfilled person. Who probably, probably most of us know... A husband like that, and you know, maybe some of us have been like that husband like that at some point. That is not the biblical model. John Calvin, and I love this, he explained that husbands should not be cruel toward their wives or think all things that they please to be permissible and lawful. In other words, whatever the husband wants, he's the ultimate authority, he can decide it, it's fine, he's always right. And he says, No, it shouldn't be that way. Don't consider everything to be permissible and lawful, for their authority should rather be a companionship than a kingship. And so, as I've been telling you that the emphasis is not on the man's authority. It's on his love and uh, the oneness and those things. It's not original with me. I get it from the Bible, but... These godly men have gotten the same thing from the Bible. It should be a companionship, not a kingship. And you know, I, I've actually heard people say, Christians, husband, you are like God to your family. You know, and it's one of those things where I want to like, okay, you know, watching for the brimstone, you know. <clears throat> or you are Christ in your home. No, Christ is Christ in your home. You know? I mean, right? You're not like Christ in your home. He is. And you, husband, are to see that everybody is following Christ. Each one of them. They don't go through you to get to Christ. You're not some priest who they they go, no, we don't do that. You call each of them your children. You need to follow Christ. You need to bow your knee to Him. He is Christ in this home. I'm just the head servant. And husbands, that's the way to look at it. And wives, even at your position where you're at, think this way. Okay? You're just the head servant in the home. Think about in the ancient times where they had, you know, all levels of servants. There would be one who was over all the other servants. Okay, husband, that's you. You're a slave. You're a slave of Jesus Christ. 
You're just the head slave. And it's not about you getting your way. It's you getting the master's, making sure the master gets his way, right? Make sure everybody's doing what the master said to do, not what you said to do. Does that make sense? And, and wives, moms, same thing, okay? With the authority that you have, you should think the same way, okay? Maybe I'm not, you know, the top slave in the house. I'm the number two slave in the house. Okay, and I'm over all these slaves, right? But they're Jesus' slaves, not yours, right? That's the way we ought to be thinking, Another error, error of stripping authority from husband and parent roles. Now, we talked about that a little bit last time. Feminists on the shoulders of liberals, they try to strip those roles, and and all roles pretty much, of any real authority. They don't want the husband to have any real authority. And we've got to make sure that we don't allow that in our homes A biblical servant leader is a servant with real authority. There's, there's two things. You've got to get both of them. So we talk about male headship, for example. The husband should be a servant leader. Okay, That's a biblical concept. Mark 10, right? He is a servant, a real servant. But he has real authority. That's the biblical model. Don't fall for Satan's simplistic uh, reductions. Now, you say, okay, lead and serve, yeah. So Jesus said we have to do, because that's what he did. Parents, parents, don't fall for worldly parenting schemes. There's so many out there, even some within Christianity, that they want to eliminate you know, rules for your kids. They want to eliminate discipline for your kids. Um, that's satanic. That's not biblical. Um, parents, you have real authority. Again, you're servants. Servants with real authority over your children. One more error. The error of thinking that having authority magically makes you a good leader. <clears throat> a lot of times when I talk to young men who are uh, planning to get married... I ask them, okay, so how are you leading, starting to lead your fiancé in spiritual things, even though you don't have authority over her right now? In most cases, it's like her dad actually does. How are you starting to lead her? Well, I don't have authority over her, so I don't. Like, eh. You need to start... Leading her, recognizing you don't have authority over her. A leader doesn't have to have authority in every situation to lead. And if you're going to be a good leader, you need to start now. And they think, they, and they'll tell me, "Oh, well, when we're married, I'll have authority." <laughs> and I just inside I laugh, <laughs> like, "Yeah, it doesn't work that way." Because when you're you said, I do, and now technically, biblically, you have authority, husband. You're not automatically going to be this wonderful leader. You think you're going to be, but you're not. It does, it's not magic. Okay? Authority, or, or the role of husband only gives you the right to lead. Authority gives you the right to lead. It doesn't give you the ability. 
doesn't give you the skill set. It doesn't give you the character. Some men and some parents think that all they need to do is just assert their authority more. You know, I have authority, authority. Kind of like the man I told you about earlier. It's easier to just crow about your authority than to do the hard work of developing godly leadership skills with godly character. It's a strong man or a strong parent who imitates Christ with strength of character, godly wisdom, humility to know he will sometimes be wrong, and and ladies, this applies to you and your realms of authority, courage to lead and courage to fail and learn, You don't hear people talking about that very much. If you're going to lead, you have to have the courage to fail. Because you will. And to learn from those failures. Actually, you'll probably do most of your learning through those failures. One who is tender when needed and bold when needed. So husbands, you need to set the godly example for your wives in their realm of authority or realms, so that you both parent well. You, husband, need to learn from your role as head in your marriage so that you do a better job as the head of your children, with, along with your wife. One last quote from John Lehman. He said, The head should work hardest of all. That's us, husbands. The head should work hardest of all. Sacrifice the most. And walk with greatest integrity. Does that sound like anybody you know? Sounds an awful lot like Christ, doesn't it? That takes us into the Lord's table where we focus on Christ even more. Think back to Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, he failed. But Jesus, son of God, carried out the wisdom of Solomon's advisors. You remember what I read back from 1 Kings? Those advisors said, if you'll serve these people and be a servant to these people, grant their requests, speak good words to them, then they will be your servant forever. Jesus came to serve. He was a servant to His people. How? He died for them. He died for us. And now, those of us who trust in Him, guess what? We are glad to be His servants forever. He's our model. Let every way in which we exercise authority, we've been given authority, may it be imitating Christ. Christ.